Hello again, and welcome to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. In part one of today's episode, we're speaking with Dagan Migerditch, co-founder of Liar's Bench Brewing Company, about his experiences running a small business and working in the service industry over the past year. Then in part two, we'll talk with artist Sam Paolini about the visual art piece they made in response to our conversation with Dagan. We'll provide an audio description of the piece, but you can also view it on our website at tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. You'll get to hear all these stories and more coming up. I'm your host, Robin Fowler. Every conversation on this show circles the theme of uncertainty. We started there because it's been such a familiar feeling over the past year, and while we all feel uncertain at times, our different professions, experiences, and lifestyles frame that uncertainty in unique and interesting ways. So here we are, speaking to New Hampshire people about what uncertainty means to them. We're then taking these conversations and passing them off to artists, and asking them to listen, reflect, and creatively respond to what they heard in whatever medium they choose. We've had music, dance, and today, we have a visual artist. Dagan Migerditch is the co-founder of Portsmouth's Liar's Bench Beer Company, an amateur fiction writer, and a five-time non-competitive volleyball champion. A graduate of UNH, Dagan moved to Portsmouth in 2008, and he has no intention of leaving. So, welcome to We Don't Know What This Is Yet, Dagan Migerditch. Hello, how are you guys? I don't know what it is yet either. Uh, so uh, what is, let's just start with the basic, what's your connection to the state of New Hampshire? So I, uh, I moved here for college. I went to UNH oh, cool. for four years. I, I met my now business partner uh, day one. We were, uh, we were randomly roomed together as freshmen at Christensen and you know, fell in love with the University of New Hampshire just based purely on aesthetic and shamefully to say that it had a good ranking in the Princeton Party Review. Um, and I was, you know, not, now owning a brewery, a lot of those things make sense. But um, yeah, I came here back in 2004. Um, and it's funny, I, my parents came up for parents weekend freshman year and we, we went out to dinner in Portsmouth. You know, everybody is telling you when you move to Durham, hey, if you're, if you're looking for a spot to go, you've got to check out this town that's, that's 20 minutes away. And we decided we would go to jump in Jay's Fish Cafe. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've been in the service industry since I was like 14 and walked into Jumpin' Jay's and had this amazing experience. And we were walking around Portsmouth and I was like, you know, I, when I get out of college, you know, after spending obviously a hundred whatever thousand dollars, I want to move to Portsmouth and I want to work at that restaurant. Uh, and after college, I moved to Portsmouth and I got a job busting tables at Jumpin' Jay's. And uh, now the owner of that restaurant is one of the investors in our business. So it was, uh, it was definitely like kismet in a way that I had no idea when we first sat down. But uh, I just fell in love with this state and have been here for almost half my life now. Uh, it's, it's my home. So uh, where were you a uh, transplant from now that you're in New Hampshire? Uh, originally from New York, right outside yeah. the capital. Cool. Yep. So not suburbia, man. Suburbia. And I, uh, that's one thing that really drew, I was drawn to about, uh, about Portsmouth and just New Hampshire in general is it's, it's a very different state than suburban New York. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, so we've, we've already touched on your industry, uh, working in the, the restaurant, the food service industry. Uh, what are some ways that your, your work and your industry have been affected by the social, political, and the major public health challenges that we've experienced throughout the year? We, we at the brewery sort of straddle two industries. Um, yeah. Dane and I made a concerted decision when we first started that we were going to open a place where we weren't just a production facility. We wanted to be uh, a tap room. We wanted to model ourselves after um, some of those older European establishments where it's the long communal tables and the big bar and everybody's sort of smushed together. Um, and so we wanted to be, in a way, a, a pub. So that that side of things has been dramatically affected. Um, obviously, you know, right now we made the decision because we're able to make revenue through through sales of our beer that we weren't going to uh, really push or reopen our tap room in, in a way that many restaurants have to in order to yeah. survive. Right now. Um, we're still doing the majority of our business for face-to-face customer engagement, having a beer on site. We do it outside and. Uh, and we've had we've had a pretty tremendous response from New Englanders who, as you know, as much as businesses are adapting, customers are are adapting too. Um, so they get bundled up and come out here on a Saturday afternoon and sit in the twenty degree sunshine and oh, man. On, on some dark quarters and beers. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really been you know if if we're just looking through at it through the lens of us being a pub and being a restaurant, it's honestly if you remove like the apocalyptic element of it and the fact that so many of us are clinging on to survive, it's really been kind of like a fascinating time. Uh, yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention and just seeing what, what different places are doing and how they're adapting their models has been inspiring. Um, and then as a brewery, I, it, it's funny, this, this industry, the beer industry has been moving along this trajectory for a number of years now where you're seeing more and more places like Liars Bench pop up, these small, homegrown pubs. And it's created this kind of, not vacuum, but this perilous cliff in the, in the mid-tier brewery world where if you are not massive, like a Budweiser or a Coors or a Miller, and you're just kind of in the middle, you're getting squeezed from both sides. So these, these places have started to focus on, okay, well, well, now we need to move back to a model where we're opening tap rooms and we're opening multiple different spots around the state. You know, McKellar is a good example of this where they, they are, had opened tap rooms in like all these major cities um, and gone back to the most basic model of brewing beer on site and serving it there. And then the bottom fell out when you couldn't go inside anymore. So we have pivoted now to us. We previously, we almost did no can distribution. If you wanted cans, you had to come on site. We're making more cans than we ever have. My partner's downstairs right now, stacks and stacks of milk crates of cans that he's labeling by hand. Um, oh, and I get to talking to you guys. It's a lovely... <laughs> Lucky <laughs> you. <laughs> but, you know, we have, we have now seen this reaction that is counterintuitive to what we've been seeing for the past 10 years, which, you know, 100-year pandemic, I guess, I guess everything should be flipped topsy-turvy. But, uh, yeah. but that's the COVID side of things. And like I said, like, I mean, that, that's been rehashed ad nauseum. And I'm, my hope is that we can have brief moments of levity where we don't have to think about it. Um, I think what's more interesting about your question is how these past four years 
um, under the Trump administration have made it a, a very interesting and dynamic spot to be as a business that believes you should have and take a moral stance. Mm. Um, you know, we had always championed certain causes that we believe in. We, we host or had hosted every year um, an oyster festival as a benefit for the Coastal Conservation Association of New Hampshire um, because we love our coastline. We love oysters. They're an amazing microorganism that has a net positive impact on the environment. A whole list of reasons of why we would do this. Yeah. Um, and over these past four years, we've really had to carve out like what, where do we step in and say enough is enough and risk ostracizing clientele who may not agree with us. Um, and I don't recall, you know, I've been in the service industry since I was 14. I don't recall ever really having to do it with such regularity. Um, the, the mask ordeal and oh that becoming gosh. for whatever reason, politicized hill to die on for, yeah. for some people, like literally a hill to die on. <laughs> literally um, die on. Yeah. Uh, it, it was really fascinating. And in a way, like now having had to deal with conversations like that so frequently, and really they were, they were frequently and my poor wow. staff with all the things that they had to put up with from the sanitizing expectations to, you know, wearing masks for themselves for nine hour shifts out in yeah. July heat. Uh, it weathered us so that like little things that previously maybe we were afraid to confront with a customer. Now it's like, I, I don't give a fuck. Like I've had to tell <laughs> these people that element uh, it, it it like weathers you like you're an old sailor. Like you just don't care anymore. Um, yeah. But on the other end of that, the, the amount of community engagement and enthusiasm and the amount of people who you learn are completely on your side and also find that type of resistance ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it was like inspiring and it reminds you of why, why community is so often used as a buzzword, but like, we actually, I think, live in one. Uh, and and that's a tangible thing that is not borne out just by writing it down. It's borne out by interactions with people on a weekly, monthly, daily basis. And and that just, you know, I, I'm leaving this pandemic. I'm leaving these past four years not dejected, even though there are things to be dejected about, but more hopeful that, you know, we there are people out there who care and who will put in the effort time to to see that the right thing gets done. So and you you're saying you're you're you have this optimism now, you're hopeful. Is that something that is relatively new or is has that been building in you? Is that is that something you live with all the time? Are you an optimistic person? Uh yes and no. I mean, I we all have our moments, right? And I've certainly mm -hmm. had my moments. Um and I don't think it's anything terribly new. It's just something that has been reinforced by this experience. Um, yeah. And I know it's hard to look out at the landscape that we have and not all problems are solved by a presidential election. And I am certainly of a, of a particular race and gender that is, it's easier for me to be optimistic. Um, yeah. But I don't know whether it's like a coping or survival mechanism, but I'm trying to focus on the the swelling of enthusiasm and action that we've seen from so many people 
or in the case of the pandemic in some instances, inaction. The ability for people to say, you know what, I'm not gonna go out and do this thing that I normally would do, but I'm gonna find ways to support my local businesses. I'm gonna find ways to support my local artists. Um, and while we certainly haven't seen enough of that, and that's where the optimism starts to, to blink out. And I don't mean from just customers, I mean from the federal government at times, or yeah. the fact that there just simply is not enough money to go around and some people are struggling. And inevitably we're going to see people who devoted their lives to building a business in the service industry or building you know, a career on stage, they might have to bow out. And that's, that is disheartening, but it's in these moments of trials and tribulations where you really see that like these things are important to people and we're gonna outlast this. Uh, and that's, I think, when you look at it from like a big macro level, that's I think where I, where I kind of just feel steely in my hope that we're gonna be yeah. okay. Um, I want to tie back to something you said earlier. You said that you you felt optimistic looking around and seeing other businesses and how they're adapting, or other industries and how they're adapting, and as well as your own industry and how it's adapting. Do you see um, ways that the service industry or the brewery industry is adapting from other? groups or that other groups are taking from you? Do you see that kind of synergy in ways that learning from other communities? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, and one thing I've always been impressed with the, with the beer industry, you know, my background's fine dining. Um, and my, my partner, Dane Nielsen, um, he's, he's the professional brewer. And, and I, so I entered this this industry kind of a little not late but he was so immersed in it and i was coming in as a bit of an outsider with my own set of skills um and the brewery industry is incredibly fraternal it's not mm -hmm. cutthroat and i think now we've seen that you know thinking portsmouth specifically uh we have seen how people have rallied together and said how can we create these ballast points with which to build something that we can stand on during this, you know, this time when so many places are drowning. Um, yeah. you know, and I, I, just to give you an example, uh, we were a part of, we bonded together with Stoneface Brewery, um, with the Black Trumpet, with Seacoast Rep, and we put on, um, it was called Pop-Up NH, which was a outdoor socially distanced performing art space um, with a food and a retail component. And just like working and being enmeshed with those communities, you start to pick up ways to do advertising in a different way. Um, you know, we, we've got our first commercial coming out on Monday of this, this coming week. And part of that was gleaned just from watching how, uh, how the rep would go about doing things, how they would be performative in their own way. Um, you know, we, we saw uh, just how we took like CSA farm models. And, you know, if you look at what like the black trumpet is doing with gather where, there and I, I think I, I might I might be wrong on the exact name of the of the nonprofit, but these nonprofits that are have figured out a way to say we're here to end food insecurity in a time when there are so many people who don't know where their next meal are coming from. But we can go to the restaurants who are struggling to get people in the doors and keep their doors open and keep their staff employed and not throw food away and say, rather than us relying on donations or uh, you know, paying for meals to be pre-made that we can then distribute, we're gonna go to these restaurants and we're 
we're going to have them make the meals that we are then distributing. Um, And just that type of collaboration that sort of circles the wagons and just makes certain everybody's going to be okay. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, definitely a learning experience that we wouldn't have had otherwise what feels uncertain to you right now personally or professionally um you know professionally i'm i'm really curious and we've kind of already gone into this i'm just curious to see what happens when things start reopening i think we're going to see a a bunch of invigorated people who are putting their phones down more and looking each other in the eyes more and just embracing that yeah i see TJ, you're crossing your fingers and I, I, you know, that, that's our, our brand logo, but it's also, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm really hopeful. I'm really hopeful that, and I'm uncertain if this will be the case or if it will just be a, a three week interlude of people really loving to be around one another again. And then we go back to just being slightly antisocial. Um, so professionally, that's, that's kind of what I'm uncertain of is, is what, what does the future look like? But like I said, I'm kind of growing comfortable with that uncertainty. I, I mean, all of life seems to be uncertainty and maybe that's okay. Uh, you know, personally, I'm wondering, I'm uncertain if I want to have a baby with my fiance. Uh, I'm, I'm uncertain if, uh, if our wedding is going to happen in the way that we want it to in, in September. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm uncertain what I'm going to be eating this weekend, but that's like exciting uncertainty. <laughs> that's uh, good. <laughs> That's great. What do, so this is a this is one of those questions that we try to ask everybody. So um, tell us what your what you did. Tell us everything you did yesterday. And this does you can you can go into as much or as little detail as you want. To. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I woke up, which is always a good start to any day. That's great. Um, That's the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah, not being dead. Good, definitely a positive thing. Um, and, you know, I usually spend my mornings with a cup of coffee, reading the news or reading a book. And I had recently, I joined a, a writer's group. And so I was finishing up some edits, did some yoga in the morning. Not like I'm like a healthy person who like wakes up and does yoga or like I'm a person who has lugged around kegs for the past 12 years. Back is a complete mess. So I need to do it in the morning to like to stand up. So I, I, you know, I did that and then came to work. Yesterday was kind of a lovely little snowy day. And it was quiet here. On Wednesdays, I tend to work in the kitchen. I fired up the kitchen and got the, the case so hot and the soup on on boil and, uh, and then opened up the bar was there on on site for the the majority of the day ran home to meet up for another zoom meeting for the writers group presenting a piece that i had written so that was exciting got to hear some feedback from some of my comrades in my in my writing group cohort and that ended around 8 30 and my lovely fiance had made some pizza and I sat in front of the television and watched uh watched the 76ers play the Los Angeles Lakers and then woke up on the couch at like 10 30 11 o'clock and went to bed so it was, it was a good day it was actually a, a pretty good day what in what ways has your uh has your routine changed oh man so much you know I used to you know I've definitely honed in on some bad habits that I had previously that were easier to indulge in when you could like hang out with friends um but routine was something I didn't value when I was younger. I, I, I actually, I value the opposite. I like chaos. I liked, uh, I like spontaneity. I liked, you know, being a bartender and getting the opportunity to go to a concert at 2:45 when your shift is at 3:15, and calling somebody to come and cover and, and going and doing that type of stuff. But you know, that, that lifestyle can, can take a toll on you. And so <laughs> as I've gotten, you know, a little bit older into my thirties, uh, I really started to value not only 
having a set of things that you do on a weekly basis, but also just there's immense value in, in experiential knowledge and putting time and effort into something that isn't immediately rewarding, but then yields reward, whether it's months, years, decades down the road. And so I've kind of gotten obsessive with stuff like that. And COVID certainly <laughs> ended a lot of things that you could do out in the public sphere, but it is it is now forced everybody both literally and figuratively indoors. So my routine is now much more based around carving out spaces in my house to to mimic the routine I previously had, um, but also in a, in a positive light to to carve out time to do some of those things that are self fulfilling and, and you know hobbies essentially hobbies. It's a, what a novel word hobby, yeah. uh, <laughs> but that I didn't previously allow myself the time to do. So it's it's been a topsy turvy world, but. Uh, you know, it's funny. I feel like we're going to all finally establish our routines and then get vaccinated and the world will go back to being normal. Which <laughs> <I> welcome. <laughs> Let's do <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Full speed. Yeah, ahead. it just shows you the fickle nature of routines in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's something you're looking forward to, either personally or professionally? Well, this this weekend, there's another basketball game. Again, small things. It's the Celtics yep. and the Lakers. So I'm going gonna, gonna to order some Massimo Carbonara and sit in front of the television after work and watch a basketball game like a 75 year old man oh yeah representing <laughs> dj's we're got his celtics jacket on <laughs> we're devolving back into the basketball podcast <laughs> all right um, let's go let's go end it all this out let's come on <laughs> uh, and then professionally uh i we we have in our downtime and in our and being stir crazy over here at the brewery we we put together our first commercial which yeah. is not a commercial in the traditional sense, but we will be releasing that on Monday. And so I'm, I'm excited for, I'm excited for that because it's a little, it's a little bonkers, a little batshit insane. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious to see how people respond. Where are you putting that out? Is that airing on TV or is it going to be on, no, it, it, no, we don't, Instagram, YouTube, whatever? Yeah, it'll be on Instagram, uh, nice. Instagram and on, and on Facebook. Yeah, check it out. Head over to Liars Bench, Pierre and Bodega, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Well, thank you so much, Dagan. This has been wonderful chatting with you. Yeah, I had a great time. Uh, and keep on doing what you guys are doing. This is awesome. In this downtime, it's nice to see creativity happening. So we will get back to normal times and I can't wait to see you guys then. And now, Sam Paolini. Sam is a muralist, illustrator, zinester, educator, and upcycled clothing maker and community organizer with the art collective Wrong Brain. They have a cat who is also named Sam. Sam's response is an image, simple at first glance, but deceptively so. The story it tells lets us know there is much more to this image than we're seeing on the page. You can see a digital image of the piece on our website at tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. I suggest you look at that now if you can. A white sheet of paper sits against a brown paper background. In large block lettering across the paper is the word inaction. Parentheses surround the first two letters, separating it into in and action. While the word action is filled in with dark black ink, in is merely dotted like the static of a television screen possibly showing us something forming or even dissolving. The word is framed above and below by large arrows extending to the edge of the page, pointing off left and right, perhaps indicating growth, direction, or expansion. 
Above and below the arrows, along the top and bottom of the page, the sheet of paper is raggedly torn. We see some hints of what would have continued past the torn edges, swirling and patterned doodles, fish, maybe bubbles, maybe flowers. Again, we only see the small pieces that remain after the paper was torn. But this is another indicator of a bigger picture, a world outside the inaction framed in the center. And now, Sam Paolini. Uh, so welcome, Sam, to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> don't be, don't be. I'm nervous too. It's okay. fine. No, okay. we're always nervous. That's you know. Uh, are you nervous about anything in particular? Just uh, no, I just haven't done it. About... Yeah, I haven't done an interview in a while, and uh, uh, and uh, talking about your own art is always uh, difficult for me. Anyway, I'm not. I don't sure. think I'll ever get used to that. <laughs> Man, yeah, I hear you. Um, so you did a, a, a cool um, visual art piece uh, reaction to our uh, conversation interview with Dagan Migerditch. Um, uh, so if you haven't seen it, check it out on our website uh, or social media, all that good stuff. Um, so your piece is called Inaction. Uh, and it uh, looks, I mean, I'm looking at a digital image of it. Would you say that the, that the piece is a digital image or is your, it, would you call the piece that the, the pe pe pen and paper? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd refer to it as analog. I don't know. Yeah, it's pen yeah, and paper. Yeah, yeah. So the actual, <laughs> I'm looking at an image of the actual piece. I'm not looking at the actual piece, which puts right. a whole nother layer onto this thing it's um uh it's uh the the word i see three words i see the word in i see the word action and i see the word inaction uh and it's the in is in parentheses in a kind of static either dissolving or uh maybe forming i'm not sure the word is uh dissolving or forming while well, the word action is in a deep solid black color uh it's framed with arrows spreading out in either direction um kind of giving us a sense of expanding off the page as well as the top and bottom of the page are torn off with ragged edges uh and you can see a glimpse of extra uh, images that were continuing past that ragged edge that gives us another feeling of this image expanding further off the page where we see. So it feels like this image is much bigger than what we see on the page here, which is a really cool effect. Um, and I also really like the rough edges in a way we're going to be talking about the process of your creation of this, the rough drafts, if you will. And even this final piece is rough in a way, which I, I really like. It's uh, you get to see those torn ragged edges and the hint at something bigger. So I, I hope that it didn't <laughs> offend you too much, me attempting to describe a piece of visual art there in an audio medium. I think uh, you did a really good job. That's <laughs> that's better than I would have done describing oh, it. So thank you. Good. Excellent. Well, I, I really like the piece. And I also was lucky to be able to get some glimpses of, uh, of some rough work that you had uh, in the creation of this piece as well. Um, so let's just dive right into it uh, as far as hearing... Uh, Dagan's interview, Dagan, our conversation with Dagan. What were some of the aspects of that uh, interview that you latched on to? What were some of the things that were really interesting to you there? Um, yeah, the. I mean, I think the 
the action versus inaction is the clearly the one thing that stuck out to me the most. Um, mm. And throughout the all my processes, that's still the thing that I kept coming back to because I think it sums up the pandemic on a personal and on like a mass level that like that sums it up perfectly just the inaction action uh dichotomy and then the other things that i picked out you know you can see through all my notes um and then i kind of processed through all those and picked out the one thing that i couldn't get rid of in my head um can you describe some of the notes for us or oh, i can go through i mean this is your rough draft so whatever you feel comfortable talking about uh, we uh, you sent us five pages of notes and then yeah. <laughs> another bigger rough draft of this piece which is is really cool so I'm, yeah. I can, I'm clicking through and looking at the notes that you sent over. So I, um, well, I guess I should give a little background first is when I first listened to the interview, um, my first listen through, I'll like, I'll take notes as I go, which are both words and pictures mm -hmm. and have it try to be like yeah. a, a more natural reaction rather than like listening to it and then kind of absorbing it and then making something from it after I like it to come like immediate. Um, so I did about three or four pages of notes. Um, and then that's the one, those are the ones in pencils. And some of it is like mm -hmm. the first one is a bunch of fish, you know, jumping Jays, uh, scene from a bar, mm -hmm. uh, apocalyptic masks are political. And then in action on the next page, really big. And then also one of my favorite things that he said was yeah. uh, about weathering the the servers not taking shit anymore. Like <laughs> yeah. it toughened up, I think, <laughs> yeah. a lot of us. Then the other thing that, um, you know, getting into politics, you know, not all problems are solved by an election. Um, maybe not any problems if <laughs> you're of a particular opinion. Um and then also not enough money to go around and like, unless you're, you know, a billionaire, you probably connect with that, that sentiment. Um, then, then I have the third page of this. That was a hard part of the uh, interview for me was, you know, you, you, Dagan was kind of describing his day, right. And uh, starting off with waking up yeah. and not being dead and like, a lot, you know, 500,000 Americans can't say that. And I feel yeah. lucky to be able to say that when I wake up and, you know, dealing with our family, you know, my grandmother just passed away from COVID this like last month and our family's relation to that and being I'm able sorry. to feel lucky that, you know, we're okay and we're staying safe and not everyone can do that. And I, oh, I, it, that really that part really got me just because death is such like a big part yeah. of the pandemic i mean it is the pandemic um and being able to wake up every day is sure ugh. um so then you know naturally i get into you know it's so important for us to have brevity and like be able to have humor and laugh and make art and do things that make us feel good in this time uh and then also you know, the balance between the heavy and the light right now, I think is really important. Uh, so naturally, this was like, just going off of that, like, there's so many things about this that were really, really heavy for me. And I think you can probably see that in the next piece of art that I made, which was black ink on white paper, and it has <laughs> inaction in the middle. Um, and it just has 
you know, notes and scribbles and, you know, artistically, I was trying yeah. to mimic what my sketches looked like because I really liked the way that the pencil notes were looking. And so I was trying to harness that, um, but it ended up just being yeah. <laughs> kind of a dark mess. Uh, so then I went to the, the final piece that, <laughs> that Robin, you described, uh, which was just the word inaction and kind of ripped. And I was like, all right, that's probably like, we could just cut out all of the, uh, <laughs> the emotional stuff. But I, but I, I like that the piece, it, it, like I said, it hints at something more. And so it, it feels like it's there. It, it's, there's a foundation of that emotional piece. Um, uh, so you can see that the word inaction is pushing out to all aspects of this pandemic and this experience. Yeah, I, I really like that. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you, your final piece is uh, very much focused on the word, on words. Uh, and you have words all throughout your notes as well. Is that something that you connected with specific to this piece or words, a theme throughout your art? Yeah, I think um, I... I don't use words in, I, I have a weird relationship with words because um, I think I use words a lot when I'm doing really hyper emotional work uh, because it's easier for me to just write out exactly what it is rather than trying to process it through yeah. um, a visual language. And I, I tried, like I did the doodles. I tried to like, how can I visually express in action? And I just, it, the word itself just made the most sense to me. And, you know, like I'll do writing when I'm doing, when I'm making zines, um, that's something that comes out and the zines are very also kind of like cathartic uh, work for me. But when it comes to like commercial stuff or any of that, it's all, you know, pictures. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think just yeah. simplifying it and just, you know, you don't need any more than that. It's just the word in action that says it all like in an action and you got mm -hmm. it, you got the arrows. Yeah, and the in I like that the there the different stasis properties of the two words there. The in seems to be if you're feeling hopeful, the in is dissolving away like television static, or if you're if you're feeling down, then maybe the in is coming into focus, and that inaction is happening. It can it can go either way. Totally, yeah. How does that? point happen where you say, I mean, I know this is a huge question. How does that part happen where you say like, this is where I'm going to take my hands off and say, this is the final piece. Uh, what, where does that moment say where, where you sent us that first larger piece and then say, no, the real piece is this. Uh, how does that, how does that kind of click for you? When does that happen? I mean, I don't think it ever did click. I think <laughs> yeah. that I'm still telling you both that you could use all of these images. I think, Excellent. and that's appropriate with the theme of uncertainty, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there's like a natural need for there to be like a polished, finished product. Mm -hmm. Like there needs to be a, you know, a drawing in a frame or, you know, you know, it needs to hang on a wall. It has to be a recording, but like, who cares? Let's just show all of it. Let's show the, yeah. the, mess, the, the messy yeah. stuff. The curse of the final draft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there was no moment. I think the moment of yeah, clicking. We don't know was, what this oh, is yet, baby. Yeah. Like, oh shit, I have to give them something. So here, <laughs> I guess this is it. And then the next yeah. day I'm like, uh, actually let's do more. And then the next day. Yeah. So <laughs> were there specific uncertainties that you faced in the creating of this piece? Yeah. I, <laughs> I definitely didn't want to be like the downer. I feel like 
I, like I was like, all right, I don't really know like what mm. you know what this project is about. I feel like it's probably supposed to be about something positive. I, <laughs> I mean, it is right. So I felt <laughs> uncertain that my contribution would be appropriate. And I, it's not that it's all negative. I have positive things to say. I just haven't said them yet. Oh, now I'm supposed to say something positive. Yeah, go ahead, <laughs> spill it. <laughs> no. uh, my uh, what are what's the, what are some positive things? Are yeah, there, are no, there? I I think that my brain right now is working in the same kind of visual way that that the the black pen drawing did, where it's like just all over the place. So maybe you can like cut and paste and put yeah. these in the proper spaces. But um, something that I really connected with on Dagan's interview that was positive was how people have been helping each other out when we have no help from the government or the, you know, the powers that be, those in power, those with money, you know, we help each other out um, and we make things happen for ourselves. And that has been something that I've been really clinging onto since the beginning of the pandemic was, you know, however much faith I don't have in the systems that, like I have so much faith in, you know, my friends and my family and my community, my colleagues, my comrades, and that I think yeah. probably a lot of us can also connect with that in whatever career or path we're on. So, um, and that's part of like the action part, right? Is like, well, let's take the action into our own hands. We'll take care of ourselves. We'll take care of each other. So what right now is the role of art and artists in this uncertain environment? Well, I think artists provide joy. I think that it's important that we continue to make things and create and spread light and love um, in whatever medium. And then also representations of bigger conceptual things. I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately is how can, how can I take something that I care deeply about and condense it into something that can be absorbed by people who have no idea what it's about. And I think artists, yeah. it's really important to do that with political, human rights, social justice, environmental justice, all that. I really, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, an artist's role in that, which is especially important right now. Uh, and, and I think that that's ex especially important right now when we're living in a cyber world, a cyber world, and also something where we can't necessarily have those conversations face to face, where we have to consume media to kind of get that education. You know, the pandemic and like being shut down and being isolated in relation to this realization that like the, the government isn't really helping us out and, you know, the uprisings over the summer and artists kind of play a role in giving that information out uh, into the world. Is that something that you've tried to work into your art before previously? Or is that something that you've just started to try to do? It, it's interesting, because I have always kind of kept two separate worlds of like, this is my art. And then like, this is community organizing. And the past yeah. year has been like, how do I combine those two? So I'm trying. Mm. Has your creative habit changed over the last year? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know if it's changed. Yeah, I mean, it must have because I am with both my business and with organizing. It was all always very events centered. So having to think in other ways. So yeah, relying on the internet and 
zines, printed matter, that kind of thing. Has working in a more digital space or a more media-centric world um, changed how you create art, how you uh, run your business? I mean, I definitely rely on social media for a certain amount of both business and like networking on a creative level, inspiration and talking to people and making connections. And it's, I mean, I <laughs> I just wish that I, I didn't have to rely on it so much. Um, I really, obviously everyone can speak to this, but I'm yeah. missing being able to talk and show in person because it's it's so different. It's not curated. It's natural. You know, it's, I mean, even what we're doing right now, like this, I'm not, censored i'm not sitting in back and being like oh that word's not right or I do am i sure like i want to show this um and so yeah i think that comes naturally into the the creation like once you're kind of in a selling or like in a showing on the internet it's really difficult to pull back from that when you're creating things without you know like drawing a picture and being like oh it should probably be square so we can go on instagram what's something that you're looking forward to right now, this week, either personally or professionally? This week, I... What is happening this week? Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm getting a book in the mail I'm excited to read. It's by nice. Miriam Kaba, and it's uh, We Do This Till We Free Us. Uh, it's about abolition and organizing. I'm really excited to read that. Very cool. Always nice to get mail, especially when it's some good something good to dig into. <laughs> totally. I, I mean, I've always been a fail of snail fan of... <laughs> fan of snail mail but yeah it's even more exciting now in a pandemic <laughs> so this is our last chance to loop back around do you have any additional thoughts on what you learned i yeah i learned that i'm really still very angry i think i'm i i was even trying purposely in in the piece that's like the medium i was like okay this is the final and then it's not the final but that one in the middle i was really trying to like okay let's do a real balance like the here's the act in here's the action and here's the inaction <laughs> but i feel like a lot of it was still fueled by a lot of anger and frustration um and sadness but i think that's also what fuels the the action part of it right it's like if we didn't feel so strongly yeah you know, we wouldn't, we would be complacent. And I think that it's fueled by compassion. I think wanting, wanting to see, you know, people treated fairly. Yeah. I think a lot of people are angry this year and you're not alone there. And uh, a lot of it is from a place of compassion and wanting to help and definitely have seen that that people are starting to get fed up in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's joy and there's anger and they both come from similar places and they're both equally important in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. This has been an incredible conversation. Uh, again, to our audience, make sure you go check out the uh, final piece as in, in air quotes, I'm giving it right now the final piece and all of the pieces leading up to it. And uh, please enjoy. Thank you again, Sam. Thank you for having me. Ooh, thumbs up. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. As always, please tell a friend. You can follow New Hampshire Theatre Project on the various social medias through the links in the episode description, and there you'll also find a link to our website, where you can find information on upcoming programming and even donate to support our continuing work. 
This podcast is brought to you with the support of the Evelyn L. Y. Jones Fund of the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, as well as our audience. If you have a story to share, you can get in touch through the We Don't Know What This Is Yet page on our website at tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. There, you'll also find more information on all our featured artists and be able to view all their work. This podcast is a production of NHTP and the We Don't Know What This Is Yet project. Our show is produced, engineered, and edited by C.J. Lewis, who also wrote our theme music, and hosted by me, Robin Fowler. And again, there's one thing you can be certain of. We'll see you next week.